0: is our unedited interview with David E. Lee. My name is David E. Lee. I'm a computer programmer. I live in Annandale, Virginia. I'm sure that I saw the Fleischer cartoons when I was little, kind of growing up, but I was much more into Super Friends, and then later the Batman animated series and the X-Men cartoons and that sort of thing that were on. In 2004 or 5, I started reading uh, Boing Boing and things by Cory Doctorow, Lawrence Lessig, talking about public domain videos and movies that had fallen out of copyright and kind of gotten into that idea of movies that you could download for free and watch and play with. I came across these old Superman cartoons that had been posted on archive.org and you could just download them and watch them. And I thought that was cool. And so I did and just, they're great. They're just so much fun. They're beautifully animated. Kind of what I've learned is that the quality of animation hasn't really changed over the last you know, 75, 80 years. If you can draw in 1940, you can draw. So what really mattered was how much time were you given to work on your project? How big was your budget? The Superman shorts were given a tremendously large budget, so they looked great. The story was that Fletcher Studios, which was one of the big animation studios of the time, not as big as Disney or Warner Brothers, but but big, They were making Popeye and Betty Boop and that sort of thing. So they were approached by Paramount, which had been doing a radio show for Superman, The Avengers of Superman. And they wanted to make movies. And typically, you would have short subject movies that would play before a feature film. You'd go to the movies and watch a bunch of shorts, a newsreel, and then the movie. And so Paramount came to Fleischer's and asked them if they would do the Superman shorts. And the Fleischer's were in financial trouble. They thought this was going to be a lot of work, and they didn't really want to take on this project. So they quoted them three times what their normal operating budget was, thinking that Paramount would say no; they would never go for for at such an outrageous ticket. And Paramount said, "Sure, let's do it." So then Fleischer was kind of on the hook, and because they were getting, they couldn't say no to a budget that large. So what they made were these lush, gorgeous cartoons because they had the time and the money and the to put into it. And they became, years later, they're the inspiration for Bruce Timm's Batman the Animated Series using the kind of noir look that comes directly from Superman. And you can see there's a couple points, especially in the Superman cartoons, where there's just this neat noir-looking lighting that you can just see the influence from the Batman animated series. When we started doing the Batman animated series, I was actually going to go with something a little bit brighter, gaudier, and a little bit more weird and stylized. But my boss at the time suggested that we look at the Flash of Superman cartoons again. And a lot of animators today will cite Fleischer's work as just being very groundbreaking. Years ago, I heard about a little film editing contest involving re-editing The Night of the Living Dead into other movies and combining it with footage from other films. Night of the Living Dead, through a quirk of the copyright laws of the time, failed to include a copyright notice on its title page which meant that it wasn't able to be copyrighted and entered the public domain. So anyone it and was and is free to download and copy and, and show Night Living Dead, you don't have to pay anyone a permit for it. You can just project it on a screen and have all your friends over and watch Night of Living Dead at no charge at all. And so the Superman Fleischer cartoons were the same way. You could download them from archive.org, and I could download them and, and watch them and thought they were neat looking. But notice that the video quality of a lot of the copies of them that you could get was really low it was like vhs quality just real muddy kind of video and so i downloaded those and watched them and then i went out and bought the dvd of them and a couple different sets of them and what i noticed was that there were little differences between the videos the first one has some sound glitches in it that weren't present in 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 one copy that weren't present in another copy and some of them had different intros than others. So I started noticing that there were these little differences between different sets of these movies that you could get. And then I became aware of Harmy's despecialized editions of Star Wars. Um, Star Wars famously was made in the 70s and 80s, and George Lucas wasn't happy with them. So in the 90s, he went back and redid some of the special effects and added in other scenes, and people generally think that, that the special editions weren't done very tastefully. So this uh, group of fans online started putting together a version of the movie that would take the high quality releases of the special edition and went to undo the extra scenes that Lucas had added in. So they would, where a special effect had been you know, changed, they would undo it. And they would, they would paint back over that and try to make it look as authentic as possible to what it looked like when it was released in the 70s and 80s. So that was kind of a neat project and in the back of my mind sort of, thought about doing that with the Superman cartoons and I've now have five or six different copies of them on DVD and thought well maybe I can go through them and see which versions have differences and try to figure out which version was the you know kind of original one. Warner Brothers did this great restoration about 10 or 12 years ago that looks really good but it has some problems with the sound and here and there it uses the wrong intro or the wrong closing music so I wondered if maybe I could go through and edit, take a copy from one movie and paste it onto the other one so that we could have this real nice authentic version that has the correct intro, uh, no glitches in the sound throughout the cartoon, and then the correct closing music all, all together. I studied film in college. I went to William & Mary, and I majored in what they called literary and cultural studies, and I put a focus on film studies, so I um, did kind of, it was not quite a true film major, but I did uh, a lot of film studies and worked in some movie-making classes. So I knew how editing worked, just the basics of non-linear editing software. I learned on Adobe Premiere, and then later Final Cut Pro. And I just kind of wanted to dust off those skills, because I do really like editing. I had done an earlier pass at this in 2013, just kind of playing around with the idea of it. And then last summer in 17. I thought, let me do a really good, comprehensive job at this. So I worked on it over the summer. I did one a week. Each week, I would release one short on the website and on YouTube. And I would say each one took uh, maybe between two hours and, and well over 10 hours, depending on uh, how complicated it was. I got better as I went along. But the general process would be that I would import each copy of the movie I had into Final Cut Pro and then watch them all side by side and pause frequently, take notes. And often what I would notice is the shorts all have an intro that will explain Superman and they'll say, you know, faster than a speeding bullet, more powerful than a raging locomotive, or sometimes it'll say, you know, mightier than a roaring hurricane or whatever. And so there were these different intros. And I noticed that sometimes one copy of the movie or another would use the wrong intro. So I would try to see if I could find different versions that agreed on which one was the correct authentic intro for that one and find the best version of that and then kind of paste that into my master file. Sometimes also there was different music, the opening fanfare done by Sammy Timberg. There are a few different orchestrations of it. So I would try to figure out which one went with which movie to try to get the authentic one there. Sometimes like Billion Dollar Limited, I know the website had a version of the opening music that was only used for that one short. And I think that was kind of neat that there were musicians who recorded this extra copy that they used once and then didn't again. So I wanted to preserve that. And then I would release them weekly on the website. I kind of had hoped that over the summer it would build an audience and more people would hear about it. And that didn't really happen. But then when it uh, was done and I could post them all, it got a lot of attention and people seemed to really like them. It was a, a solo project. I did it by myself. I just kind of thought it would be fun to work on. I used Final Cut Pro mostly for the editing, which I had to get reacquainted with, and it was kind of fun to get my feet wet again with film editing. And I think doing it by myself allowed me to dig way deeper and focus on these details that no one really cares about or notices, but uh, I was able to dig into. And I took very seriously the idea that I wasn't trying to fix the movies in any way. I was just trying to restore them to what they were. There's some issues where there's sort of some racist caricatures of the Japanese especially, and I wasn't going to cover that up. I just wanted to show what, you know, they made in the 40s. There's one line in particular that people notice in the first movie. The chief sends Lois out to meet with the mad scientist, and Clark says, Chief, don't you think that's a dangerous mission for and a lot of people seem to think that that line may have been, don't you think that's a dangerous mission for a woman or something like that? And that I might have changed that line or cut that out or, or maybe somebody else did over the years. So I looked into this as much as I could and couldn't find any evidence that the line had been anything otherwise. There are people who seem to think they, it might have been, but I couldn't find any copies that had anything but that line. So I was very particular about just preserving exactly what I found. If I ever come across a copy of it that has a longer version of that line or anything else, I'll I'll stick it in. I don't want to pretend that the movies are different than they were. But I was trying very seriously to keep them exactly as I think they had been using the best available information I had from the different sources that I was able to find. Well, the animation quality really is gangbusters. They just look gorgeous. They're all hand-drawn they're rotoscoped. Rotoscoping was a technology and invention that the Fleischer brothers actually created themselves. That's now used commonly everywhere for animation, where they would film an actor going through some of the motions that they would in the animation, and then they would project that and draw over the actor so they could sort of trace and have lifelike movements going on. So they just look great. Just because I, you know, something is old doesn't mean it's any worse than anything is now. So you can watch these, and they're just very exciting little adventure stories. And I think also their early Superman, so he's he's a little bit more true to his core character of who he was. These movies were made in the 41 to 43, Superman was only released in 38, so he's a still a very new character. He'd have been appearing in the action comics book and then in the radio, and then that's it. So he can't fly yet, for example. He doesn't he gets the power to fly during these movies. You can see in Volcano he flies a little bit, and then Chappetur is he's flying, and later he's flying, but the early ones he's just leaping tall buildings in a single bound. Uh, he's just less powerful. He gets stopped by stuff that wouldn't phase Superman nowadays. He's just this ultra super powerful character. The intros to every cartoon explain his powers because the audiences couldn't be assumed to know what he can do. So the intros will say he has x-ray vision or he's strong or whatever you need to know for that particular cartoon. You have Lois as this awesome go-getter reporter character, very much cut from the cloth of the Howard Hawks women That you might see in, you know, uh, Rosalind Russell playing or Evan Hepburn or that sort of character. So I just think they're a neat kind of window into early Superman and also kind of 40s culture. There's a few of these that are war films that show Superman going over to fight in Japan. And they have these stereotypical racist Japanese caricatures. And I think it's kind of interesting to look at that and see what a wartime culture is, you know, saying about the people it's fighting and how that was done. I noticed more subtle things like everyone you see in almost all the shorts is white. If you walk around New York City in the in the forties, you're gonna see black faces and brown faces, but they only drew white faces. And that's just sort of interestingly, you know, part of what they were thinking was representative of what they wanted to draw. And I also I learned some things about how things haven't changed a whole lot. In electric earthquake, you have this character who's a Native American who comes to insist that they give Manhattan back to his people because they were stolen from them. And Clark has this line where he says, Possibly, but just what do you expect us to do about it? As if to say, uh, you know, yes, the, your land was stolen from you, but what are we supposed to do about it? And I feel like that sort of attitude is still prevalent today when people are faced with the idea that injustices are happening they say, well, that's not, you know, what, what am I going to do about it? I'm just trying to live my life and, and be a good person. And why should I have to deal with this? So I think that those sorts of attitudes, it's interesting to see a, a cartoon from the 40s where you have Superman, whose job is to fight injustice, and still having that kind of attitude that we have today. So all those things were just kind of interesting, in addition to the uh, cartoons themselves just being really exciting and fantastic. Fleischer Studios, as I understand it, was already in financial trouble when it started making the Superman cartoons. And they were successful, and so it allowed them to stay afloat for a while. But they were just kind of already in financial straits and then having personal problems. One of the brothers was having an affair with the secretary, which came out. So Paramount eventually takes over the company. and You can see on these shorts, the first few are labeled Fleischer Studios, and then it becomes Famous Studios when Paramount took it over. And eventually the studio gets absorbed into Paramount and becomes its animation division. But in the process of all this, and I'm not a copyright lawyer, so there are a lot of little details about it. But my understanding is the copyright got lost in the shuffle and National Comics, which is now DC Comics, did not renew the copyright for these films. So they entered the public domain. Now, this is just these 17 shorts. This is not the general Superman copyright or any of the comics or the radio shows. Those are all owned now by Warner Brothers. But these specific 17 shorts entered the public domain, which means they're free for anybody to... Watch and edit and download and re-edit and remix and exhibit and do anything you want with these. Oh, belong to everybody. And if I can uh, talk for a minute, kind of digress about the concept of the public domain itself. This is how it's supposed to work. The founders of the Constitution in the U.S. were post Enlightenment thinkers. They thought that arts and sciences were for the people, and they actually wrote in the Constitution that Congress should promote the progress of science and the useful arts by securing for limited times to authors and inventors the exclusive right to their respective writings and discoveries. when that phrase, limited time, is important. The idea is that if you write something, an author should be able to get money from his or her work and be compensated for it for a little while, and then it should become open to everybody, and likewise for inventions, for patents. Um, I have some problems with the patent system as it works, but the history of it was that we used to have these guilds that would have specific knowledge. They would work on stonemasonry or whatever, and they would have special ways that they worked, and they would keep those secret. And that was for competitive reasons. They didn't want their secrets getting out because then another guild would copy them and wouldn't want to hire them. But as a result, some of these secrets would get lost to history. There's a kind of Roman concrete that we just don't know how they made. Game of Thrones dramatizes this. You have the fire, the dragon fire that Tyrion uses in the battle. And the concept of Valerian steel, this idea that there were these inventions that people used to know how to make and we don't know how they did it anymore. And that really happened throughout history. So the concept of patents came along and the idea was if you invent something, you write up a patent application and you document how your invention works and uh, reveal that to the government and publicly and then the government will protect you. Make sure that other people cannot copy your invention without paying you, that's the idea at least, and for a little while. And then after your patent expires, then that becomes open and anybody can use that so that uh, for a limited time, the inventor of that product gets rights and gets money for it. And then that knowledge becomes for everybody. And that was very important to the founders of the US, that idea be in the constitution that for a limited time, Authors and inventors have exclusive rights, and then they pass to everybody. And this is except with art, for like classical music. You don't have to pay Beethoven's ancestors or, or, or any other classical music composer. You don't have to track down their, you know, dozens of grandchildren and pay each of them a small amount in order to record one of their works. You just do it because we accept that classical music is everybody's. Like, why Sherlock Holmes? You're free to make your own version of Sherlock Holmes. You don't have to pay Arthur Conan Doyle's ancestors Uh, the character of thor is a norse mythological character marvel comics is free to take the idea of thor and turn him into a superhero and make a lot of money with movies so that's just accepted that for older works that's the case but people have a harder time with newer works and a lot of that people tend to blame on disney disney made mickey mouse and it wants to own a copyrighted mickey mouse so that only it can profit from mickey mouse Um, The copyright term traditionally had been that a character or a work would expire after 50 or so years, and that's been extended. I think it was even 20-something for a while. And what's happened is that companies have lobbied to Congress to keep extending the length of time that a copyright persists so that they can keep making money off of those characters. So characters like Superman and Batman and such are still under copyright, even though they were invented you know, a long time ago, and normally those works would have expired already, and those would be open to anyone. So normally, characters like Superman would have already entered the public domain, but because the Congress has been successfully lobbied to extend that, the character Superman and such is still owned under copyright, except for little exceptions like these cartoons that didn't have their copyright extended. So the Fleischer Superman cartoons themselves are in the public domain, and anyone is free to get a copy of and uh, play with them. And that's why um, there are so many different versions of these movies out there. What I found is I have five or six different DVD sets of them that are all a little bit different It's because each one of these companies doesn't have to do anything to get them. They just get a copy of the movie and they put it on DVD and they sell it. But the result is there's also no single one custodian who's in charge of making sure that the versions that are out there are authentic or of high quality or uh, are really well restored. Um, so kind of my goal was because these are all out there and, and um, available, I could get all these different copies, look at them, take the best pieces from each one and edit them into one final version. The hardest part was maybe deciding how seriously to take it all. Once I started digging in, I started seeing all these tiny differences in the movies and kind of had to decide, oh, do I really want to go through all that effort? And eventually decided, yes, yes. So there were moments where I was going frame by frame through things like the credits, trying to match the credits so they would work exactly deemed to be um, correct and most authentic. And sometimes there wasn't a consensus. Sometimes I would have two copies of a movie that had the timing of some sequence one way and two more that had another way. And I didn't have any good way to, to know which one was maybe most authentic to how it looked in the 40s. So I just had to take a guess. But it was tricky kind of deciding how seriously to take all that and then making judgment calls on what was the most authentic. The Mummy Strikes was probably the hardest movie to do. It is a kind of a neat but strange one. But I found when I was watching different copies of it on different DVD sets that they all had little differences. The Warner Brothers box set, which is generally the one that looks the best, had uh, the credit sequence, all the timing was messed up. So certain title cards would be up for too long or too short. And it looks a lot better than the other sets. Normally, what I would have done in that situation was just use the credit sequence from a different copy of the movie and cut and paste that there and then cut back to the Warners once it got to a part where it was better. But the video quality on Warners was so much better than the others, which had really washed out colors that I really wanted to preserve that So I went by literally frame by frame through the credits, making sure that each title card was up for the right amount of time. And that was a tremendous amount of work for something no one will really ever care about. But I I wanted to be authentic. And then I was using the audio for that one from another box set by a company called Bosco Video. But then I found that it had some skips and audio glitches, so I had to patch those in from other versions and that was all just a lot of work for, for you know, just little things. But then I discovered watching a box set, a DVD from Image Entertainment and Archive.org, it seems to be using that same file, that there were all these extra sound effects that were added into that particular cartoon. But I found them on another one, too, on Showdown. Um, and what I've come to learn is that sometimes when you're working with a public domain video, a company will edit in their own sound effects or other bits so they can claim a copyright as a new work. And uh, so I didn't want to use any of the sound effects because my goal was to preserve the original sound, but I had to go for my own educational purposes and document all those. So I spent a long time listening and trying to track down all these extra little sound effects that they had added in. And then finally, the ending music, most of the shorts would end with a scene of Lois and Clark, usually back in the Daily Planet, talking about the adventure they had, sort of a little joke. And there was original music that was recorded for every short Usually the music would play and then it would uh, fade or transition into the Superman theme that would play over the closing credits. And very often these shorts will... Kind of mess those up, in on one or another DVD, you'll find they will have just omitted the closing music or cut it out and changed to another one. Maybe because the film was damaged and they didn't have a good copy of one version of the music, so they would change it and use another one. And usually, I was able to figure out what the correct sound was and copy and paste it from one DVD to another and get the right one. But for the Mummy Strikes, I was never able to find the right one. There's this little horn line that plays. And in my head, I'm sure I can figure out how it was supposed to sound and resolve into the Superman theme, but I could not find a copy of the movie that does that. They all cut out at one point or another and don't play what I think was the whole original music. So I'm still looking for a copy of that movie that has the final closing music. It's just a little thing, but it's one unresolved piece of music I was not able to restore correctly. Arctic Giant, I didn't have to make any changes for. Arctic Giant and also Magnetic Telescope, those two were fine. The Warner Brothers restoration looked great, sounded great, so I didn't need to make any changes. And then the first one, Superman, looked great from the Warner Brothers. There were just a few audio glitches, so all I had to do was patch the audio from the Bosco Video DVD on top of the Warner Brothers DVD, and everything else was fine. I think probably Mechanical Monsters is my favorite. I like Superman, the first one, and most of the early ones, but Mechanical Monsters is just real special. It has this neat underground lair that the scientist is in with his iron works. It has Lois getting herself into a jam on purpose to get a story. Superman fighting the monsters is just an exciting dynamic scene. The design of them is just cool. It's homaged later by Miyazaki in Castle in the Sky and a little bit in Iron Giant and definitely in Sky Captain in the World of Tomorrow. So it just has this cool looking art deco kind of look to it. That story is also neat because it has a Sequel. There's a cartoonist named Brian Fies who made a comic strip called The Last Mechanical Monster. If you Google that, you can find it. He's currently syndicating it on GoComics.com, and uh, it's just kind of neat because these stories are public domain. Anyone is free to write a sequel if they want. So he's written this cool comic strip about the scientist who made the mechanical monster is getting out of jail and um, trying to go resurrect his project and finding one more of his creatures that he can still get working. Yeah, if you want to see them, um, go to mmsuperman.tumblr.com. Again, mmsuperman.tumblr.com. I'm also on Twitter at uh, Dave Extreme. The name MMSuperman is for mild-mannered Superman. It was my little idea of me just being your mild-mannered, humble video editor, uh, Clark Kent obviously being the mild-mannered reporter. I didn't draw these cartoons, obviously. I didn't transfer them myself from film. All I did was take different versions that were out there and tried to combine them into what I think is the definitive edition of the movie. So the website has links to the YouTube where you can watch them, the copies that you can download and put on your computer and watch and put them into iTunes and put them on your iPhone or even if you want edit them together into your own new Superman movie because they're public domain and you're free to do that. And I've written some little articles about each film and some behind the scenes things. So I'd love for people to just go enjoy them really. Ultimately someday my hope is that these movies will get enough attention that maybe there'll be some interest in someone doing a proper HD restoration of the movie scan in original prints, uh, 35 million prints or whatever, and do a high quality restoration that we could then release to the public. And for the sake of film preservation, have something that's better than kind of what I had, which was just standard definition video. So I hope people enjoy it and go check them out. One fun thing that happened was after the videos were done, I posted them to Reddit and they got a lot of attention and a bunch of hits there. And I got a comment from Val Kilmer saying how neat it was to preserve filmmaking treasures like this. And there were a lot of funny comments on that where uh, because Val Kilmer played Batman and people were joking about Batman liking a Superman video.